Epilogue Part One of Born Again by Alfred Lawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Gabby Cowan. From the New York Daily Special Dispatch. Sing Sing, New York, 11 a.m. Electrocution Day here always attracts many curious people about the prison walls but the much heralded execution of john convert seems to have brought an unusual number of persons to this neighborhood and the hill overlooking the prison is almost black with people who have come from all parts of the state viewed from this hill sing sing prison presents the appearance of a huge square pen covering many acres of land and enclosed by a high brick wall on the three land sides and a tall iron picket fence on the side adjoining the hudson river on the top of these walls sentinels are stationed at intervals who walk back and forth armed with breech-loading rifles and under orders to shoot dead any prisoner attempting to escape within the enclosure at the north end are several red brick buildings which are used as workshops for the twelve hundred time prisoners now incarcerated here running along its eastern border is a massive stone structure about seven hundred feet long fifty feet wide and sixty feet high with windows grated by heavy iron bars this is the main building of the prison and is used principally as a dormitory for the inmates and offices for those who have charge of the institution the extreme south end of the main building is walled off separately and occupied exclusively by prisoners whom the state has doomed to death this place is called the death chamber inside of this chamber is a high steel cage four tiers high and divided into several cells which are about eight by six feet in dimension thick cement walls floor and ceiling make each cell separate and distinct from the others heavy doors of barred steel open outward onto the different platforms which run all the way around the inside of the cage armed patrolmen known as dead guards are kept constantly walking around these platforms Within this cage is John Combert and many other notorious murderers waiting their turns to be put to death as punishment for their heinous crimes. At the south end of the death chamber is a solid iron door which leads into an adjoining little red brick building, about fifty by twenty feet in dimension, one story high and containing two rooms these rooms are perfectly bare excepting that in one of them there is a chair and in the other a table about ten feet from the door leading from the dead chamber is the electric chair by which the state kills its worst criminals in appearance it is similar to a plain old-fashioned garden armchair with a high back connected to this chair are several straps by which the condemned man is harnessed in a sitting position so that he cannot move these straps are adjusted across the head chest abdomen 
both fore and upper arms and the ankles they are not bound too tightly but left taut in order to allow for the expansion of the body the electro connections are at the head and the inside of the right calf the trousers being cut from the knee downward so that a contact can be made with the bare flesh just back of the chair is a large closet which conceals all of the electrical apparatus necessary to throw on or off the current at the will of the electrician by whose hand the condemned man is sent to eternity stationed within the closest the electrocutioner can see what is going on outside but cannot be seen from without just back of the closet is a partition dividing the two rooms through which is a door leading into it in the centre of this other room is a stationary table upon which the autopsy is performed all of the machinery has been thoroughly tested and found to be in good running order and neither the state's electrician nor the warden expect the slightest hitch in connection with today's proceedings the twelve witnesses invited by the warden and made necessary by law together with the brain experts have arrived upon the scene and everything is in complete readiness for the electrocution of john Combert. from the new york daily special dispatch sing sing new york one fifteen p m one of the strangest and most pathetic tragedies that has ever happened in the state of new york has just taken place within the house of electrocution here the result of which must cause the whole civilized world to pause and shudder your correspondent earnestly prays that he may never again be called upon to witness another such horror the effects of which have completely unnerved him and beggars even a faint description at precisely twelve o'clock to-day with the state electrician medical experts and witnesses mutely stationed in their places the great iron door leading from the dead chamber was suddenly swung open and between two guards the gigantic form of john Combert walked over to the electric chair with a firm and unfaltering step immediately all eyes were turned upon him and at the same instant there was a subdued murmur of surprise by many of those present at the magnificent appearance of the man tall and erect with finely formed limbs and powerfully built shoulders he easily towered above all the outer occupants of the room with a clean-shaven face the handsome features of which expressed extraordinary intelligence kindness and gentleness of nature combined with wonderful strength of character and a shapely head overhung by an abundance of beautiful snow-white hair he looked more like an ambassador from heaven than a convicted murderer he wore a black prince albert suit of clothes as he reached the side of the chair he paused and calmly looking from one to the other of the assemblage he began to address them in a clear and melodious voice almost from the first 
utterance his hearers became electrified by his charming manner and eloquence and for nearly half an hour were held spellbound while he explained the principles of natural law and the vast benefits the human race could derive by putting them into effect in a convincing way he drew a beautiful picture upon the minds of those present of a heaven that should be established here on earth by and for all living things in which they should work united and harmoniously together for a common and unselfish cause instead of each one pulling in a different direction for his own selfish purposes he explained that all living things were composed of the same material which was constantly undergoing a change from life to death and from death to life by being moulded and remoulded into different forms which are constructed according to the intelligence absorbed by the whole that it is within the power of the human race if working together as a unit to reconstruct all living matter on earth into more perfect organisms just as it is within the power of a man to remould a pile of dead scrap iron into a new and useful machinery that these results could only be accomplished by the eradication of selfishness from the human race and that it was impossible to extinguish selfishness as long as the money system was kept in force and individuals were recompensed according to their craftiness to help themselves he told of the soul being everlasting and how a wise law of nature breaks the monotony of its existence through the process of reincarnation and that the soul of the rich aristocrat of to-day may be the soul of the suckling pig to-morrow he said that it was within the power of every living thing to do good if only following the advice of the soul and that the oftener this advice was taken the easier it became to do right but that the less the soul's warning was heeded the more hardened and vile became the nature of the individual he told of how children inherit the weaknesses of their parents and mentioned how much grander it is for parents to give their children character without gold than to give them gold without character so earnestly and pathetically did he present the whole subject that at the conclusion of his discourse there was not a dry eye in the room and as he calmly took his seat in the electric chair the whole assemblage including the guards stood motionless for several minutes as if in a hypnotic trance and then as the guards reluctantly began to adjust the straps around his body three men burst into loud sobs and rushed from the room bitterly denouncing the electrocution was savagery and refusing to witness the proceedings any further with the exception of the condemned man everybody was completely unstrung but john Combert, in the shadow of death did not lose his wonderful self-control for a moment but sat with perfect equipoise in that murderous chair calmly watching with apparent interest the work of fastening him in you have that strap around the abdomen twisted 
he coolly remarked to one of the excited guards and then quietly added you are not sufficiently hardened for this kind of work my man but perhaps your children may be and as if stung by remorse at these words the guard suddenly burst into a frenzy of grief and cried out in piteous tones no no don't say that i love my children i undertook this objectionable work for their sakes that i might be able to give them the same advantages that other children enjoy but now that you have spoken i can see that i am paying for their advantages at the expense of their moral characters and that they too might follow in my miserable footsteps and eventually sell themselves for money but listen i have but just taken this position and now i am getting my first experience at this kind of work and i feel as if i were about to commit murder and now after hearing your wonderful words my conscience is crying out within me to stop and so in the presence of these witnesses i only not renounce all further connection with this abominable act but i most solemnly swear that i believe in natural law and that i shall henceforth devote my life to teaching its principles to my own children and also to those of my fellow beings my eyes have suddenly been opened for the first time in my life i feel like a man at this unexpected turn of affairs the countenance of john Combert lighted up with a look of divine happiness that was truly glorious to behold and addressing the guard he said well spoken my noble man may you accumulate sufficient strength to enable you to faithfully follow out your splendid resolution may your future deeds be so unselfish heroic and fruitful towards uplifting mankind that the grandchildren of your enemies may live to praise your name these words seemed to have a cheering effect upon the guard who affectionately shook the hand of Combert and then left the room. During this time, however, the other guard had continued the work of adjusting the straps and finally, having them properly arranged, stepped backward a few feet and raised his left arm as a sign to the electrocutioner in the closet that everything was in readiness. And then, just as John Combert uttered the words, always consult your soul for advice a terrible dull buzzing sound took the place of his voice his body suddenly expanded as if about to burst his limbs were drawn up and distorted blue flames shot forth with a weird glow and sickening odor of burning flesh saturated air and quicker than it takes to tell the deadly current had penetrated through every fibre of his body and then as all turned away their heads from the awful sight a loud crash was heard and the door leading from the courtyard into the other room burst open and in rushed the warden yelling like a madman stop it for god's sakes stop it you are killing the wrong man and pulling open the door of the closet which concealed the electrician he threw off the current with his own hands at the same time amidst great confusion 
several of the spectators rushed forward and began unfastening the straps which bound the unfortunate man to the chair after which the body was carried into the other room and laid upon the table following in the footsteps of the warden was a tall beautiful young woman hatless and with hair dishevelled and dressed disarranged she was panting heavily and a wild terrified look gleamed in her eyes she appeared dazed and almost exhausted catching sight of Combert, she frantically tried to get near him but was held in check by one of the doctors while the other one made a hurried examination of the body and then this doctor apparently suffering from great mental excitement turned toward those present and with his eyes full of tears chokingly whispered too late he's dead at these terrible words the young woman uttered a heart piercing shriek and rushing forward threw herself upon the corpse as she piteously moaned you have murdered him you have murdered him from the new york daily the following statement made by one of chicago's most beautiful and brilliant young society women is the sequel of the most extraordinary case that ever attracted public attention in this country my name is arletta wright my father is r u wright of chicago illinois the well-known financier and multimillionaire a few years ago while in paris i was introduced to a man by the name of john Combert. i supposed he was an american but at that time did not take enough interest in him to inquire as to who he was or where he came from later however i found that he was continually crossing my path and appeared anxious to court my attention he was a tall well-built handsome man with a clean-shaven face and snow-white hair apparently about forty years old but there was something about his looks and actions that i did not like and i tried to avoid him as much as possible but he was not to be avoided very easily and after persistently following me all over europe he crossed the ocean in the same steamer and finally came to my home in chicago he got to be such a nuisance that he was refused admittance to our house and in order to get rid of him entirely i secretly left chicago and went abroad again a few months afterward i returned home and found that he had left for parts unknown and the incident was soon forgotten during the month of march nineteen o three about two and a half years later important business called my father to new york for a stay of several months and mother and i accompanying him we took apartments at the opulent hotel on broadway near the seventy-eighth street about that time i decided to visit the different institutions of new york and one day i was being shown through a charity ward of the rough hospital i was astonished to see john Combert lying sick upon one of the cots he had a wild and peculiar stir in his eyes and at first gave no sign of recognition but seemed to be undergoing an intense mental strain as if trying to recall to mind some event that had escaped his memory the doctor informed me that he was an unidentified charity patient suffering with typhoid fever 
and was evidently insane he told me that the man imagined he had been in a trance for over four thousand years and could only be brought out of it by a kiss from one he called arletta my heart seemed to melt with pity and sorrow and my dislike changed into love for the man upon hearing these words and without hesitation i kissed him at the same time hoping most sincerely that the act would have salutary effect strange as it may seem the whole expression of his countenance changed instantly as if by some magic force his eyes lighted up radiantly and looking at me in great astonishment he uttered my name arletta but while i was quite elated over my strange success i was also much surprised and puzzled at his following utterances whereby he claimed that i was the reincarnated soul of arletta of sageland who according to his story had died on the same day i was born over twenty-one years before and from which time he could form no recollection of events whatever subsequently i was informed by an eminent brain specialist who examined him that he was mentally sound but that owing to a severe fracture of the skull received some time previously his brain had become divided into two distinct parts causing two personalities to exist and enabling him to recollect events only as they were separately recorded on either side of the brain by this explanation i readily understood the reason why he did not recognize me and also for the wonderful change which took place both in his character and my feelings toward him on that day my first and last love for man was born as time passed by and he recovered his health and strength he appeared to me the most beautiful character i had ever known and with each succeeding day my love for him grew stronger but while love formed a strong mutual link of attachment between us another force succeeded in putting us apart he believed in natural law and unselfishness with equal rights for both strong and weak alike i believed in religion and selfishness with the strong enjoying more earthly blessings than the weak he believed in a supreme being who created immutable laws whereby the entire machinery of the universe is governed and that these laws could no more be changed by the silly prayers of man than by the prayers of a microbe i believed in a god to whom i could pray to change earthly conditions to suit my fancies a god willing to grant me favors even at the expense of others he believed in reincarnation and the power of the soul to eventually master the flesh and create a heaven on earth i believed in the transmigration of the soul to some obscure heaven where there would be nothing farther to do but rest during all eternity he was broad in his views and never tried to restrain me from thinking as i liked i was narrow in mine and quite unwilling that he should believe in any theory except my own these and other differences of opinion caused us to separate one night last june 
the same night that awful murder took place in the seraglio apartments i met john comber at our regular meeting place in central park for the last time it was my habit to meet him in an out-of-the-way corner of the park because i did not want my parents or friends to know of it for this same reason i had never told him my last name or place of residence at this meeting i informed him that he must either give up all further connection with the movement he had instituted toward the regeneration of mankind or bid me good-bye forever he chose the latter course although i know that his heart was fairly bursting with grief when i left him now that it is too late i can fully appreciate what a grand noble fellow he was i offered him a million dollars to forsake the cause he had pledged himself to uphold think of it one million dollars a sum of money for which most civilized men would gladly sell their eternal souls but john combert a believer in natural law could not be bought at any price and even though i offered him my hand in marriage an offering which many crown princes of europe have repeatedly begged for still he would not recede from the grand purpose he had undertaken well we parted and the next morning i boarded a steamer bound for europe but i was wretched and unhappy and felt that life was a burden to me i was unable to drive the image of john Combert out of my mind and as i stood upon the deck of the steamer as it passed along the river leading to the ocean i looked back toward new york and fancied i could see poor john standing alone and forlorn upon one of the docks with his arms outstretched sadly imploring me to return and with a feeling of remorse i started for my state room to lie down and have a good cry end of epilogue part one recorded by gabby cowan in kingston ontario canada